Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Madeline Orr. It's a great pleasure to meet you, Prof. Thank you so much for doing this. Now, on your website, it says, everybody calls me Maddie. Yeah. So what <laughs> yeah, do you... Everyone is... It's funny. It's one of those things where my answer is different if it's on paper or being spoken out loud. So on paper, it's usually Madeline. Um, but yeah, everyone except my mother calls me Maddie. So she what calls is... me Madeline, and that's how I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so your next paper is going to be called Madeline. What have you been up to this time? Oh, um, next big project. I have got a book coming out in a few months. So the last mm. kind of two years has been traveling to every continent, sports organizations all around the world, individuals who are in the sports world, which is most of where my work sits, and talking to them about how big climate events have impacted them. And it's been a lot of fun, a little bit of secondhand trauma going on in those conversations, um, you know, unpacking big hurricanes, wildfires, droughts in Eastern Africa, and, and also mind-blowing. Like, it's been so cool to learn about people's resilience and how they see the sports systems changing or not and kind of how they see that moving in the future so that's coming out in May and that's been taking up most of my headspace wow well I guess you've answered my question of what have you been thinking about before I even used <laughs> it what, what's the title <laughs> of the book may I ask it's titled warming up how climate change is changing sports exciting and who's publishing it Bloomsbury Terrific. So mm. congratulations on that. And it sounds as though it's been very grueling politically, emotionally, and in travel terms also, I imagine. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who don't want to have a conversation about climate change. Um, mm. And then there's a lot of folks who don't want their sport, so their entertainment or their escapist vehicle, uh, to be called into question on anything. So when you're the young woman coming into the room saying, let's have a chat about climate change to a typically very male dominated room and kind of a very traditionalist space where they don't like change. Um, yeah, I raise a lot of eyebrows doing my work. And so it's been, yeah, you, you know, you see, you see kind of the best and worst in everyone. And it's, it's a lot of fun to see the world from that lens. Did you have any particular tactics you might share with us about how you were able to get into those male enclave? Yeah, I mean, part of it is like, I think people in good faith are willing to have an open conversation for the most part. They don't want to share the nitty gritty of how things work on the back end. They never want to admit that money is driving those things. Um, but once you can get past that, I think I the big one is I kind of start from a position of, for the most part, climate change is not the fault of any individual or any individual organization, barring a few. But for the most part, sports wouldn't be that view. And within that, you know, can we frame the conversation? And I try to frame the conversations as like, how do we make it all of us versus the problem, as opposed to some people versus other people? Um, and that opens a lot of doors, and that's been really fruitful for me. Um, and I try to just approach it with a lot of curiosity. You know, I'm not, there's no gotcha moment here. There's, you know, there's definitely bad actors in sport. Like I'm not necessarily a person who's going to be out there calling them all out. Although sometimes I wish I was that person. Um, 
and and I think that kind of welcomes people in. So that's how I've typically approached it, and people are happy to talk about it. Um, do I get all the answers I'm looking for always? No. <laughs> but, you know, you build trust over time. You go back, you visit again, keep in touch, and they come back to you. You know, there was there's a few organizations that the first few times I talked to them, it was very, like, you're getting the comms person's answer, uh, which is never it's super polished and sounds wonderful, um, but not, but not necessarily exactly like what I'm asking. They're going to answer the question they want to ask. They're professionals and that's what they do. Um, but it takes kind of two, three, four times later back. And then they get to the point of like, Oh, she's not trying to say guess. She's just trying to understand what's going on. Okay, fine. We'll talk to her. Uh, and that takes years. You know, th this research wouldn't have been possible five years ago. Like it only is possible because I spent a lot of time building relationships with folks and, and yeah, always approach from curiosity and there is never a gotcha. Do you think also that what may have happened over those years, apart from your building trust with these oh, yeah. folks, is that awareness of these issues may have risen anyway? Yeah, yeah, and it did, right? Like all signs point to awareness of climate change has skyrocketed since 2018. We know that in, in particular, um, you know, folks in that 25 to 50 age bracket in just about every country are polling at high rates of being aware of climate change and also um, willing to agree with the science that it's human caused. So we're, we're running into fewer of those challenges. And I think there's also been some movement in the sports world, which has opened up the ability of kind of different folks who may not be as familiar with climate change to feel comfortable talking about it, even though they're not as familiar with it. And that's been a shift that I've noticed as well. Mm. Yes, and there are some athletes who are activists in this area now, as I see. There are. Yeah, there are. I mean, look, it's not athlete. I find athlete activism fascinating because for most of history, they've not been backed by the institutions of sport. They're putting their necks on the line, putting their salaries on the line. Like people hated Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was playing. Like now he's a hero. When he was playing, he wasn't appreciated. So you know, Billie Jean King, same thing, like Colin Kaepernick got us to like, it's kind of the same story over and over. And what I'm finding is interesting about climate action amongst athletes is, first of all, they're doing it in big numbers. So it's not often the case that it's one athlete going up against their institution. It's kind of a, a collective of athletes writing an open letter, kind of getting on the same page, which is not dissimilar from what we see with um, like an athlete's union, for example, or a player association. And the second piece is they are asking their organizations to participate in being part of the solution, not necessarily calling them out for being part of the problem. And I think that's a tact tactful approach that's working. So it's been interesting to see how that's been navigated. I don't, I don't think that it's as kind of politically risky at the moment in most environments as speaking, for example, about Black Lives Matter or Indigenous rights or, or kind of some of these other massive systemic problems. Um, but I've been tracking that and it's been fun to follow. It's interesting you mentioned Kareem because I, mm. I quite agree. And it's ironic that as he becomes an older states person, he's also becoming what he has been for 50 years, but increasingly an important public intellectual because he has rewritten the historiography of race in the United States, along with others and sports. And it just so happens he's a great writer. So a, a quick query related to Canada, where you're Ooh. from, where you <laughs> yes. are now, I think, as we speak. 
but you've hitched rides into lots of other places. Canada is one of the major sites where climate change is affecting the, in inverted commas, national sport. Is that right? Oh, yeah. If hockey (laughs) can still be deemed the national sport of Canada, and you, you tell me whether that's right or wrong, it's assuredly one of the sports that's in trouble. Oh, yeah. I mean, so in Canada, we have two national sports. Most people think it's just hockey. We have two, um, hockey and lacrosse, and both are in trouble. Uh, Hockey kind of more visibly so. So there's a a whole folklore going back in hockey and the cultural practice of playing outdoors in the winter. And we've lost 35 days of winter, of skatable days since the 1970s. And that's having all kinds of knock-on issues. So you're not seeing kind of hockey tournaments organized outdoors anymore. It used to be the case that little kids would learn to skate outside because it was free to access. And then they would move inside as they kind of developed um, in your first, second grade age. So, you know, eight or nine, you move indoors, you learn to play hockey, et cetera. That's not happening anymore. Parents are putting their kids indoors right away because there's more indoor rinks, which is good news, but also, um, it's, it's sad because I think we are losing that connection to that folklore and to that history. And it's massively exclusive to have indoor spaces that cost hundreds of dollars per hour to rent. Like it's, it's prohibitive and we're seeing the participation rates drop off a cliff. That's been happening for 15 years. So the number of kids playing hockey now compared to what we saw kind of in my dad's generation is abysmal, frankly, despite the fact that Canada's population has grown and a big part of that is access and the costs associated with having to go indoors as opposed to playing on your neighborhood rink. And what about in gender terms? Yeah. Hockey has been occupied terrain or no? Uh I mean, hockey, the the gender questions in hockey are everywhere and unsettled and ongoing questions. The women's game has been underfunded, underrepresented, undersupported, despite the fact that our women absolutely dominate around the world. Sorry, Team USA. Also not sorry, because it's just the truth. We're really good at women's (laughs) hockey. Um, (laughs) But the part of that is like there's these dominant cultures around hockey and part of what makes it um, kind of such a a tricky one to unpack is you get these communities who play hockey that are upper middle class, major, majority white, but like really almost all white um, from kind of the same communities in those middle class, upper class neighborhoods, mostly in the cities. And, and what ends up happening is you have these really kind of dominant uh, logics that happen in these spaces. So like the locker room is a lot of boys or a lot of girls who've been told forever they're super special and are not necessarily exposed to other folks uh, and other ways of thinking. And so you get this like coach is almighty God in this context, that's problematic. And we've seen all sorts of issues with abuse and harassment coming out of these spaces on the men's and women's side. Um, We've seen issues where, you know, you've got players who think like they develop a bit of a God complex because they've been told they're special their whole lives. And they've kind of, um, not face any consequences for really anything. And so, you know, you get these, we're facing a big issue right now where our men's hockey team, uh, the junior team is just this week, they've called in five old players for a gang rape charge um, to face charges. And and that's a case that is shocking and unsurprising. Shocking like it, yet it, not surprising, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and on the women's side, ahead. like on go the women's ahead. side, this yeah. is our third attempt at a women's league. 
the others have not worked and they've not worked because they're underfunded and undersupported. Like we don't view women's sport the same way we view men's sport. And, and I mean, the easiest evidence of that is that we literally have to put women's in the title of the league as opposed to just calling it professional hockey league. So there's, you know, all these kind of, and I'm not the best scholar to speak about that, but I can kind of point out a few big challenges on the gender piece there. Challenges. And you also mentioned lacrosse, and I apologize for not having mm. to get to it myself. <laughs> Tell us about the issues that lacrosse is confronting. Are they similar to hockey? Yes and no. So lacrosse is a much more, so it has indigenous roots, first of all. And I think that's important to point out is this was a game that was played between tribes uh, in the woods. And we now have woods on fire and a sport that's been absolutely kind of cannibalized by white Canadians. And, and so it's a very different game now than it was when it started. Um and a lot of our outdoor sports this summer have been consistently shut down with smoke. We have forests that are on fire. Um, we're expecting more this summer. Last summer was an El Nino and people chalked it up to, oh, it's a weird year, it's an El Nino. And that's true. It doesn't explain all of it. Climate change is the big factor there. And we're going to continue to see that. And so I think kind of the whole Canadian landscape around summer in which our sport is shifting, our winters are tightening and our summers are expanding, but smoky and unhealthy. So not great here, uh, really at all and so there's going to be we're expecting and we're starting to see a shift to indoor sports which is great I want to see people play sports I want to see them have fun um but there's a big part of me that's worried we're going to lose a lot of culture wow and may I ask a personal question about when your mom was shouting Madeline come in yeah <laughs> were you out there playing sports yourself I, I was yeah yeah I was um so I learned to skate well, glide, I couldn't like pick up my feet. The skates were too heavy, but I learned to skate before I could walk and was kind of playing as a little kid skating in the neighborhood. I was also, um, I played rugby through high school and was out like, I, you know, we used to shovel the, the field in order to play our early season games. And that's definitely not happening at all anymore. And that's not even like, that's 20 years ago. So it's an interesting thing to watch happen. Um, the challenges that are kind of, in front of us today versus what we would have grown up with. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks, really well-meaning coaches, parents, et cetera, who look at it and say, oh, like we, you know, we shoveled the snow off and we played through heat and we played through whatever conditions. And that's true, but kids today are facing way worse conditions. And I think that's a reality that needs to be held in check. Interesting. And I can ask what position you played in rugby? I played hooker. And is, is it a... So people kicked your machines a lot, probably. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I have the scars to prove it. I was going to yeah. say, you bear the marks. <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and in terms of rugby and other outdoor mm. sports, were they things that would or are played kind of end of winter or more in autumn in Canada? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So most of our rugby programming that would happen at the youth level or through schools would happen in the spring. Um, so our fall sports are your kind of football or soccer, um, football, American football. That all happens in the fall, cross country. And then the spring is track and field rugby. Uh, and rugby, you would start kind of training indoors in January, February, and then you would move outdoors typically around March break. And historically, it was snowy. Historically, that was a really annoying time to be a rugby player. Um, the coaches would joke like, oh, it's fine, though. But if you get injured, like the snow's right there. It's built in ice. 
which is really annoying. And I heard that too many times from kids getting injured and coaches just saying, put some snow on it. Uh, nowadays, same schedule, no snow. They can go outside as of mid-February in a lot of places. And that's great because I think we might have some really good rugby coming out of Canada in the next 20 years. And also, I think uh, it's kind of sad. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about how changing seasons are really crucial to the way sports are organized in Mm -hmm. many parts of the world, along with other topographical questions. So in a place like Colombia, uh, football is popular nationwide, uh, whereas uh, bicycle, bicycle racing, which is very important, is more in the interior because it's mm-hmm. cooler and it's mm-hmm. just too hot <laughs> on yeah. the to yeah. do it. And, of course, historically, we've had this divide in the Olympics between summer and winter, which is constitutive. Yeah. But it's becoming very difficult, and the risks that athletes are running with climate change, particularly in the summer games, are extraordinary. You know, I mean, yeah. there are just so many studies now that are horrifying in their account of what both in real terms, amateur athletes, but also the now pro athletes of the Olympics, the kinds of risks that they are exposed to on a daily basis, right, which might be smoke inhalation, but also skyrocketing temperatures. And so yeah. that that's a big issue. And maybe that helps to take, in you know, one sense, depoliticize the topic, do you think? I think so. I mean, look, the... The environment in North America, anyway, was not a political hot rod until the 80s. Like, it it was the thing everyone could agree on for so long. It's why they still have the Clean Air and Clean Water Act in the U.S., two of the most powerful pieces of legislation in history. And I think, you know, it became politicized when a false narrative around environment versus economy came into play. And it became this kind of notion that you can either have the economy or you can have a healthy environment. That's just untrue. Um I think that the same principles that applied in the 70s that allowed these things to move through are still true. I think you'd be hard pressed to find me a parent who doesn't want their kid to have clean water, cleaner, and a healthy place place to play. So if we can pick up on that and say, look, most people in my part of the world don't work outdoors. You know, the majority of folks aren't farmers or foresters or fishers or or whatever. Um, Most of us work indoors, live our lives indoors. We're removed from our food sources. We're removed from everything except sport sport takes us outside so if sport is what brings us out into the outdoors let's use that as the tool to have a conversation about the outdoors and there's something ironic there isn't there in terms of canadian national identity which apart from being male dominated is also white dominated and for the most part anglo dominated and it's very much about being a pioneer so it's constitutively anti-indigenous uh, anti-pt mm-hmm. And it's also very much, as far as I can tell as an outsider, about the fantasy of a rural life. Yeah. As if it were the real Canadianism, as opposed to living within 50 miles of the United States and living in cities, which is what almost everybody does, right? But that mythology is real, I think, or correct me if I've got that wrong. 
Yeah, it's it's very real. It's very tied to kind of this idyllic winter scene of either skiing or kind of skating on a pond uh, in your town. Like that's not how most people experience Canada anymore. I also though would say that since the mid 2000s, more than 50% of our national team going to every Olympics has had at least one parent born outside of Canada. So our elite athletes are very um, diverse, which is really kind of cool to see, uh, especially in the winter side, the, sorry, in the summer side, the winter side is way less diverse. Um, and again, that's because of cost. Uh, but then, you know, I don't know that that's translated into the ideology around what it means to be a Canadian athlete. Like it may have in some pockets, but on the whole, that's not what we're getting. Um, so there's going to be some shifts. I think Canadiana is going to mean something very different in the future. I think that's probably a good thing, frankly. Um, our government has these calls to truth and reconciliation. 94 of them came out in 2015 to direct how we as a country reconcile with a very violent colonial history. And that is something that is an ongoing process. Sport is way behind, um, which is a shame because internationally sport is one of the things that we're showing the world is who we are. It's one of the ways we communicate that. So We'll see how that shifts over time. There's some great researchers working on it. Actually, some of my colleagues down the hall, Trisha McGuire-Adams, um, Janelle Joseph, folks here at U of T. So it's a, it's a big part of our conversations here, but I don't know that that's translating into kind of the, the common discourse. Now, one of the things that you've worked on, and uh, I deeply admire both the profundity and the amount of your research, is sustainability. <laughs> This is a controversial concept nowadays, but it's one that your work seems to, if not embrace, then accept as a term of trade. Have I got that right? And what's your take on sustainability? I love that you're bringing this up because you're you're going to make me call myself out, which is great. Um, I hate the word sustainability, <laughs> but I... Excuse me, but how many of your articles have it in the title or something like that? All of them, like basically, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I Here's the thing, right? I think, so, so, like, for all the reasons that I think your your listeners would know, sustainability has been co-opted by just about everybody to mean just about everything. It doesn't really lie in its roots at all anymore, which was forestry in Germany. We are not having a conversation about um, limits to growth, which is a conversation I'm very interested in having. Um, that's not what's happening. I think it's been massively diluted. However, in the process of becoming diluted, it's become a word people kind of generally understand and associate as something good. And uh, I think there's something potent. You may say so. That's rather brilliantly juxtaposed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something potent in that, mm. that, you know, we can climate change is scary as hell I think for everybody um if it's not I'm wondering who are you and have you been paying attention <laughs> like so if we can figure out you know what's what's the option here or what are the actions that are going to preserve play and preserve opportunities whatever those may be into the future um without kind of compromising the needs of future generations now what I would say is I wish there was a different word <laughs> And I like specifically when we we're talking about how we would frame the work we do kind of in the sport and environment space. And we chose, we went with sport ecology. That was a year long conversation between about 20 academics about how to frame it because sustainability is so watered down and diluted. And 
we didn't think it really did justice. Also, it can mean economics, it can mean cultural, it can mean anything. Um, but still I use it because I can't, so when I came out of grad school, no one wanted to have a conversation about climate change with me. But if I framed it as like, let's talk about sustainability, they would. And I thought that's interesting. And what I realized pretty quickly is a lot of the terminology that I had been using over time in my academic work wasn't translating to people in this, in the industry. Uh, so for example, like my early research, my master's work was on legacies and that means something very different if you're talking to a person in the academy versus someone who works for the international Olympic committee versus a host committee, they're going to talk about it differently. And mm -hmm. I learned early that if I'm going to have an impact in the way people think in kind of the popular discourse, I'd have to adopt terminology for better or worse that resonates. Um, so I kind of take sustainability with a grain of salt and I try to explain in my work what exactly I mean by that. And it doesn't always come through because first of all, no, most people don't read articles. Um, so thank you for looking at the ones that I did. Write, but... <laughs> Sorry. Now, speaking now, of a grain of salt, one mm -hmm. of the confessional moments in your personal website is where you say you want to be known as the hostess with the mostest, as the best dinner party yes. host in history. Okay, here's your dream dinner party. People you've got around the table, living or dead, right? They're from the environmental movement, perhaps. They're from sports, whatever. Yeah. People associated with your field of endeavor. Who are you going to invite and why? Who's going to be there? Everyone says Muhammad Ali, right? So you can have him if you want. No, no? I think it would be... <laughs> No, respect, respect to Muhammad Ali. I mean, wow. But um, no, I think it would probably be, um, well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, just like legend. I'd love to meet him um, and pick his brain on like, how do you keep going when everyone hates you so much? Because I think I'm at risk of getting to that point at some point in my career. Um, so it'd be good to get that information early. Uh, I would invite um, Nelson Mandela. I'd just be curious, kind of the same question, but kind of on a bigger platform scale, um, potentially from a political standpoint, I would invite Marie Curie because I think it's interesting to go back to like women in science. Like, I just think that's a whole history that doesn't get unpacked enough. And it just, I'd be really curious just on like, how did you start in this? Why chemistry? Like, tell me more. I need to understand that better. Um, I might, uh, <laughs> Asada Shakur, <laughs> um, I might bring up, uh, ooh. I, like, I'd be curious to, like, meet my own grandparents. Like, I, I have a couple that I really never knew, um, one of whom was uh, in the Second World War but went AWOL to take his best friend, um, who actually is the brother of my grandmother. So he ended up marrying his best friend's younger sister. Uh, but he, they went AWOL in the Second World War because his best friend was having a mental breakdown and he kind of recognized that this is not an environment for this. This was before PTSD. Um, and they went and played Robin Hood in, in Scotland for a couple of years and were distributing war bonds to young women whose husbands were on the front. And it like, it's a fascinating story and all kinds of nonsense. And I'd just be curious to know what happened there and why were you playing Robin Hood and who were you to redistribute funds? But also I kind of like it a little bit. So I'm curious about that. Uh, yeah. I, I, and 
Probably um, Shonda Rhimes. I'm curious about how she leverages big platforms to have big conversations without actually having them. <laughs> and um, Michelle Obama to ask why the hell she's not running for president because right now it's pretty bleak in the US. So yeah, that might be my lineup. That's a pretty good lineup. And by the way, folks, I didn't give her any warning of this because I only just thought of it as a question. <laughs> I think your mom should be there in case anything gets burnt in the kitchen and she has to tell you off. Honestly, like she probably would be. My parents live down my street, so she, <laughs> she'd be there they, for sure. They, they may be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so something you slipped into that discussion when you were talking about Kareem mm. Abdul-Jabbar, who is, as I, as may be obvious, is also one of my heroes. Yeah. <laughs> my hero was Lou Elsindor. That's how yeah, long wow. ago he was a hero of mine, which is, I think you indicated or intimated that you suffer from some attacks for the work you do. Without necessarily naming names, could you elucidate a bit more on that? Explain to us a bit more about the sorts of, difficult times that one experiences doing this type of research? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great question. It's actually, there's a few people now that I'm in touch with that are writing kind of a commentary on like, what's it like to be a public scholar dealing with big problems right now? Um, but one of the, so Twitter is a scary place. I'll start with that. Um, and when Elon Musk took over, it got worse. So the kind of direct messages, the commentary, the people attacking, and and most of it is like, totally dumb just so dumb that it's like I can just look at it like kind of blow off blow it off but occasionally you get someone who is I think trying to be thoughtful and um kind of not recognizing that there's a person on the other side of that so they'll bring up a point about like oh uh uh, I, so one I get all the time is like, oh, like, well, you fly around the world and you're talking about climate change, like what a hypocrite. Uh, and and I guess my answer to that is like, yeah, I am. Most of us are. Um, what are you doing about it? Like, here's what I'm doing about it. And I have that one's easy. But then there's people who will say, like, who are you to tell whatever organization that they need to be more sustainable? Or you get I get a lot of attacks on like my physical appearance. Um, I get a lot of like uh, sport management, it's not a real discipline. Sport ecology is not a real discipline. Like your job isn't real. <laughs> Just like, that's cute. Like tell my husband that when he's telling me to stop working at 11, cause I've got a deadline tomorrow. Um, it's very real. And then, you know, you get the pieces of like, often what I'm saying, especially in the media, when I work with the BBC or ESPN or whomever is critiquing the big institutions of sport and they don't like that. So I've gotten cease and desist letters. I've gotten um, kind of legal messages coming from big organizations to my university's legal team saying, shut her up. Uh, my institution's been really good about saying, no, she's got the science to back it. So uh, no, we're not gonna shut her up. It's her privilege to do that. And it, it kind of comes from all angles. And then there's the folks who like last year I was at a conference, um, the European Association of Sport Management. And there was a, a guy, a fellow who came on stage and gave a whole talk about how um, people looking at sport and the environment are asking all the wrong questions and doing it all wrong. And he, for 20 slides, put up my research, like one after the next, after the next, and just like blew it apart. And I, part of me was like, this is such a helpful guy insight into like why, where people are going to pick apart my work. So in, like part of me was like, this is great. 
the other part of me thought it'd be really cool if you didn't do this in front of a huge crowd who like I'm four years out of my PhD you're a dean like could you not could you not have just made this a conversation that we have like does this have to happen in such an open forum um where my work gets ripped apart and on some points just the commentary was some points were great and some of them were just it was clear you hadn't read it so it was like oh okay that's not helpful uh so yeah so it's been weird I've kind of had it like from within the academy from outside the academy like a lot of people just don't don't like I guess people who speak up now you mentioned comments on your appearance which Mm. obviously is a very gendered thing yeah I'm sure the rest of it do you think relates to your being a woman oh I think I'm probably an easier pick than some of my male colleagues who are older and kind of more established but I I, it's it it I don't know I don't know it's hard to know isn't it yeah you (laughs) you mentioned the fact that you were four years out of your doctorate and Miss Dube was a dean you know needless to say most deans are just corporate types who is ever any good now amounts to nothing and who are there as time servers and disciplinarians who are mostly opposed to academic freedom and social justice, whatever their rhetoric may be. They're just yes people, mostly yes men. But that aside for one moment, the fact is this was an established person in a senior position. And as you say, why select your work for particular opprobrium it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I've got, I've developed a thick skin though through it. Like I don't often think about these things happening. I like, I'm aware that they're happening and I kind of process them as they come, but I've been fortunate to have really good people around me who are like, yeah, like you're probably kind of scary to some of these organizations. It's fine. Blah, blah, blah. Now, now, like, just going back to the dinner party, something else you mentioned all passant. So mom and dad are in the kitchen supervising, but nothing's being burnt you mentioned a husband i'm assuming he's leaving pardon you mentioned having a husband i assume your husband at the dinner party will be serving (laughs) uh i think he'd be holding court with kareem abdul jabbar my husband is also a sport academic um and i'm very lucky like it we are so we've been champion i know you said a lot of deans are kind of on the corporate side yes people and and i agree with that i haven't had any of myself which i'm like blown away by my fortune uh, and I'm very aware of it but I my husband got hired here when I got hired here and so we work together and he does work on masculinity and violence in sport he comes from a law background and sports sociology so he'd be picking everyone's brain I think I, I don't think he'd leave the table I think he'd so try not even to am I, am I serving uh yes yeah I'm actually <laughs> serving but I want a nice uniform I want a nice uniform with the gloves. Uh, with I well, I'm not <laughs> sure about the gloves because I want to make certain I don't drop things, and the gloves might make me drop things. But I want your mom and dad, who are probably younger than me, instructing <laughs> me very carefully. Okay. Well, so they'll they'll be but happy to do that. Your husband's got too many important things to do to be wasted on serving. So that's. <laughs> Definitely my little task because I'm trying to get into the dinner. Okay? Oh, I understand. I think this is my point. When I was going to be serving, I thought this is my entry point. Now, I had a couple more questions, Prof, and then what I'd like to do is throw it open to you so that you could 
subtract from anything we've discussed or add anything that you want to mention um, in addition to what's already been said. So my first question is this one. So I'm a bushy-tailed, bright-eyed young woman or man knocking on your office door saying, Prof, I want to be you. I'm interested in sports ecology. I've Mm -hmm. just signed on for the doctorate here. I wasn't a jock or a jockette. But these things matter to me and I love sports. Mm -hmm. Tell me what to do to begin. Oh, okay. So the first thing would be like read as widely as you can and not just sport. My goodness, not just sport. Sport is a very new discipline. (laughs) Read cultural studies. You should be reading media studies. You should be reading communication theory. You should be reading natural resource science. Um, The broader, the better, as far as I'm concerned at the beginning. I think there's definitely an element of like take a course or, or do some learning over in an environmental science program because if we're marrying some of these ideas like I was very fortunate I went and did a whole second master's in natural resource science and thank goodness because I don't think I'd be able to read a climate model or do any kind of valid prediction work if I had just come out of a sports school so um, for me that was really critical I would also ask them kind of more specifically what do you want to do with that would be kind of the second question. And the third thing would be great, find some friends because this is a long road and you need people uh, who are gonna like see you for coffee when you need to leave the office early because work isn't happening today or you know the the model isn't good or whatever it is, bad news. Cause a lot of what I do is working with bad news. I work with a lot of bad news. So building up kind of that emotional capacity and that social capacity to cope with that is gonna be also a part of that. That sounds like wonderful advice. So my final question before throwing to you is to ask you about the next project. This is a little cruel when you've got a book that's about to come out and that's exciting. (laughs) I hope lots of people read it. I'm sure they will. But on into the future, can you see what further trends are happening to you or that you're part of? Yeah, I I think the big one like the kind of seismic shift for me in the next few years, I think if everything works out, it'll be, I want to be a mom. So that'll be kind of figuring out how to be an academic parent is going to be a weird one. Um, and then professionally, the big project that's next is I'm, I'm really interested in how do we reframe conversations in climate around what we win if we do the work as opposed to what we risk losing if we don't. And so I'm curious about kind of a positive psychology lens on climate change and also other kind of big social issues. And it comes to me from athletes that I've worked with over the years who kind of continuously are saying, like, we don't line up at the start line to not lose. We line up at the start line and we're driven by this idea of of achieving, of winning. And that's a very potent motivator. And in the climate conversation, that doesn't exist. Like, we're not having a conversation about when we take this action to reduce cars on the road, here's how much better air quality will be. Here's how much better our social lives will be. This is how much space we're going to gain back for parks. Like we don't talk about that. We talk about you're going to have to give up your car and oh, woe is you. Um, So I'm curious about how do we start shifting that conversation into this is what can be achieved and not necessarily in capitalist terms, although that might be part of it at certain points, um, but kind of on a broader health society element like 
there's a lot of things that we would gain from a process of taking on climate change in a more serious way. And I don't think that conversation is getting out there. So will your attempt be to continue in the public intellectual realm or will this have a research component as well? It'll have a research component. I said that with my last question. I've given you yeah. enough. Sorry. Uh, like both. I think it's, I think we're moving to a space where, and I mean, your career is kind of evidence this is possible. It's possible to be a public scholar and have a job in the academy. I don't think we need to be in the ivory tower anymore. And I, and I kind of have seen your careers as really good, obvious evidence of that. But I think that younger academics kind of think the same. Like I hope to have my academic career and work on research and have all of this grounded in research. So I'm working with psychologists um, as partners on this and then have find ways and avenues to talk about it with the public and invite them into the conversation and help them co-create some of it. Because I don't think that it needs to be white women from privilege sitting in an office doing this by myself. I think that's one way to do it. It's not the way I want to do it. So I'm kind of hoping to broaden it out. That's exciting. Thank you. Prof, is there something you'd like to add to what we've discussed? Anything we've missed, for example? Oh, no. You know, this is a fun conversation. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on. Not at all. Uh, I've learned a, a huge amount from reading your work, which I greatly admire. And I've learned even more talking to you today. So it's been great. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.